Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 22nd, 2017, and my guest is historian and author Christy Ford Chapin of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She's also a visiting scholar at the History of Capitalism program at Johns Hopkins University. Her book, which is our topic for today, is Ensuring America's Health, the Public Creation of the Corporate Healthcare System. Christy, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you so much for having me, Russ. Your book's a history of healthcare in the United States over the last century or so, and it tries to explain a couple of peculiarities of the U.S. system, in particular why it's so expensive, uh, which I think a lot of people are aware of. But the, something they're not so aware of is why it's so fragmented and so specialized, which we sort of take for granted. I think most of us do take it for granted. And what I really liked about the book is it reminds readers that the way the world is now may not be an inevitable result of the way things have to be. In particular, the American healthcare system is dominated by patients who are spending other people's money. And how that's done, that spending, may not be as inevitable as it appears. So I want to start with what you call the insurance company model. How has insurance evolved in the United States? And what were the key decisions and players that brought us to where we are today? Okay, well, the reason I point out that we have this model called the insurance company model is that a lot of people assume, well... The healthcare system, by and large, is is what you would have in the in the absence of comprehensive healthcare reform. So, of course, we got comprehensive healthcare reform in 2010, but before that, we really just had you know some more minor interventions with Medicare and Medicaid serving certain per, certain population groups. So, what I'm trying to point out is that the system is not at all what would have naturally evolved out of competitive markets. Um, because if you look back to the history, to the first several decades of the 20th century, for example, what you see in the medical marketplace is numerous different models. Uh, there were union plans, there were consumer cooperative plans, mutual aid societies had their own health care programs. Uh, there were prepaid physician groups, which are very similar to, to some of the physician health care cooperatives we have uh, that are being tried today. So you had all these different models, and some of them were, were very elegant and very efficient, made consumers and, and, and healthcare analysts very happy. But the AMA made an intervention at the, the end American, of the 1930s. That's the American Medical Association. That's right. The American Medical Association, uh, which represents physicians. So one of the arguments I'm making in my book is that for a number of reasons, the AMA really was the primary regulator of the healthcare market. Um, one of the primary reasons for that is because of licensing laws. Uh, now, I know a lot of people think, well, licensing laws those make a lot of sense. Of course, we have to have those. But uh, particularly during this period, they were used to keep out any physicians that the AMA did not want to see participating in the market. Uh, of course, women physicians, African-American physicians, uh, because AMA members controlled the state licensing board. Now, this became very important in the medical marketplace because the AMA decided that they were against all these different types of models I was just explaining to you, the consumer cooperatives, the physician groups, um, the union plans, certainly. They were afraid of any other third party coming into the healthcare system and getting power because they wanted to keep their power, obviously. Um, so they opposed all these programs and any physicians that contracted with these plans, whether it was union plans or mutual aid society, say an African-American mutual aid society or perhaps some other ethnic groups such as the Jewish mutual aid society, they would uh, do whatever they could to get their license pulled from them so they couldn't practice medicine. They also had a lot of power over hospitals. It was usually rather easy for AMA physicians to have another physician who was not obedient to the AMA way to have their hospital admitting privileges uh, revoked as well. They would also be expelled from the local medical society, which meant no referrals, uh, no ability to get uh, malpractice insurance, which was already a problem in the early 20th century. 
So they had a lot of power, and they could shape the healthcare market uh, to, to, to serve what they saw as their professional objectives. And one of these things was that they were not going to allow these different experiments. And, and believe it or not, a lot of people don't realize the AMA was actually against health insurance. They were completely opposed to any kind of prepaid health insurance. Uh, and it's not why. until the end of the 19th. Well, the reason they were against health insurance uh, was because they didn't want any third-party payers involved in the system. Uh, I think they recognized quite rightly that once you introduce a, a financier into the system, there's the worry that the doctors would, some, would become beholden to the financiers. And that would diminish their sovereignty, their autonomy to practice, their pay. And also during this period, um, you had the rise of the large corporation at the end of the 19th century. Uh, I think it's easy for a lot of us uh, to forget just how scary this was to, to a lot of different groups at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Physicians were really afraid of of getting pulled into a gigantic medical corporation. And that's, they, they feared a lot of these experiments would, were just kind of nascent corporations that would evolve into large medical corporations where physicians would be in a hierarchy, uh, under other people, particularly lay people who didn't understand medicine and, and reporting to them. Um, kind of like the engineers. They didn't want to become the engineers. They wanted to maintain their autonomy. So let's talk for a minute about some of these pre-1930 healthcare arrangements. Uh, and of course, the irony is going to be, we'll eventually get to this, and it doesn't matter if we get to it or not because everybody understands it. The irony is is that the AMA, through their fighting against certain types of models, ended up with a model where there was third-party payment everywhere. Uh, and they were, did lose a lot of control. Doctors lost a lot of control over what procedures are done and, and how often and how and, and so on. So we obviously live in a world where the, the, really the, the government and the insurance companies are in many ways steering the healthcare system uh, for better or for worse. I think mostly for worse, but you know people can obviously disagree about that. But I want to go back to the pre-1930s before the AMA flex, flexed its muscle. And of course, as you point out in the book, it's much less powerful today than it, than it was then. Then it was much more powerful and you gave some examples of how they use their power. But let's talk about what those models were like. Go through a couple of them. Let's talk about um, the doctor's groups, maybe prepaid insurance, um, and the mutual aid societies. How did they work, and how are they different from the current, say, healthcare that many people have today, which is run through their insurance companies? Well, the interesting thing about all of them is there, there was no insurance company. So I'll give you two examples. Um, one example would be unions. Uh, unions had a variety of different plans. Um, they had some funds where they actually hired physicians on salary. Uh, and the union leaders um, would actually elect boards and, and, and they would appoint the physicians and then the physicians would supply care for the union members. But more common, really, what you saw was unions contracting with physicians and hospitals. And they were very savvy. Union leaders really, they had a lot of expertise in healthcare and its arrangements. They were very savvy very early on in understanding such things as needing to, to have coinsurance or deductibles in place so that you didn't have one or two members or certain members um, needlessly running up, you know, attempting to tap into the fund if it wasn't necessary, you would even have some cases where a union fund leader might go with somebody to the doctor to make sure that they really were sick and not, you know, just shirking their responsibilities. So they, they had a lot of understanding early on, and, and they're certainly important all the way through the 20th century and the way the healthcare system develops as far as um, being very important at the, at the bargaining table for how the insurance company model ends up uh, developing. But another example that I found particularly compelling in my research was what was called the prepaid physician group. And prepaid during this period was just a synonym for insurance. Really, it was just a, a, a physician insurance group. And what was so interesting about these groups were two things. Um, first of all, they were multi-specialty. So you had, you know, you say, oh, physicians practice in groups, and people think, what's the big deal? Physicians practice in group today, but the groups they practice in today are single specialties. So they're all general practitioners or they're all orthopedists. 
during this period, what you had physicians wanting to do, and it makes so much sense, is they wanted to have the surgeon, the orthopedist, the the general practitioner, you know, you can imagine the cardiologist, the full spectrum of physicians all practicing together. And the idea was they would provide comprehensive integrated care in one place. Um, we it's, it's easy to lose sight of how important integrated care in one place is unless uh, anybody listening to this who is themselves or has a member who is chronically, a uh, member of their family or friend who is chronically ill uh, or is having a difficult time getting an accurate diagnosis for what it is that is ailing them, they will understand how important this point is. Uh, under today's system, somebody who's really sick has to navigate, you know, a bevy of different specialties, you know, passed off from their specialist, I mean, from the general practitioner to perhaps the cardiologist and perhaps the surgeon, and they have to navigate all these different physicians. Now, if they're having a hard time even finding a diagnosis, uh, under our current system, a doctor can only do so much for them that is billable, and they're just going to send them off to a specialist. Uh, and nobody might ever even know if that person gets a correct diagnosis. There's no way the person could die soon afterward, and nobody would even know because nobody really owns that patient, so to speak. Uh, under these prepaid physician groups, what happened is they would also provide insurance. So uh, you would have one-stop shopping where you would pay as a family or an individual Instead of paying your monthly fee to an insurance company, you would pay it to a doctor group or a physician group. And uh, so there was no insurance companies. The physicians acted as insurers. Um, and this was really crucial, not just for providing high-quality integrated care, but also for keeping costs down. Because uh, one of the arguments I'm trying to make in my book is that incentives really matter. And we need to make sure that particularly physicians are incentivized correctly. Uh, they're the ones with the requisite expertise to know when a patient needs more care or doesn't need more care. I mean, these are decisions I think we want to have made at the, at the physician-patient level and not by insurance companies or government officials or whoever it might be, you know, many layers up. We want these decisions made on the ground. And, and what was so interesting about these groups is that today, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the insurance company model, but the way it's set up is physicians are in incentivized to overutilize care, which means they're incentivized to provide as many services and procedures as possible because that, that runs up the bill, you know, that, that that's how gets, they get paid. They only get exactly, paid for the services paid. they provide, not for care generally or Spending time right. with a patient. You can't spend time with a patient. I once right. went to a doctor. Exactly. That's not <laughs> you don't get any money for that, which is crazy. Right. Drives me right. crazy. You can't, yeah, for an email or a phone call, you know, you can't. That's not billable, as a, as a lawyer would say. Well, forget, for, forget email and a phone call. I went, once went, was considering switching doctors. I went to see a, a, a new doctor, and we chatted for five minutes. Then he said, well, let's do, a, I forget what he wanted to do, an EKG or something. And I realized, oh. He needs to bill. He needs to do something. Mm -hmm. I didn't need the procedure, but he needed to do things that could justify spending half an hour with me. It was yes. I, that was it. I mean, I was that was horrible. But I'm sure that's part of the course. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sympathetic. I understand. I understand. But the problem is that we have to tie that. The doctors need to be tied to the bottom line. You know, there's a certain amount of resources, and we want the correct people deciding how those resources are used. Now, under these prepaid groups, it was, it was perfect because by tying them to the bottom line, what you, the way they were usually paid was a set salary and then a portion of the quarterly profits. So they wanted to be profitable. So it was not in their best interest to just kind of run up the bill and send it far, far away to an insurance company that you know they really had no other connection to and didn't care about. But also, it was not in their best interest to withhold care either. You know, who's going to, it doesn't take long for the word to get out that why am I bothering paying these people my monthly fee? You know, we, you can imagine the scenario today. You've heard these stories. I've been having these awful headaches for a year and I can't get a CT scan. You know, say you're under maybe a, an HMO like Kaiser or something that's a little bit more controlled. Um, 
if you're wanting your, your prepaid group to be profitable, you also want to make patients happy. So you're not going to withhold care, which is a, which is a big problem in some systems, such as, such as the British system, so, for example. For sure. What's the difference? And I have friends in England who tell me it's a very different medical experience there, good and bad, but a mix. Uh, what's the difference between the model you're describing and either an HMO or a hospital? So my dad was in the hospital recently, and I went to visit him and – I think I counted in the two days I was there, 17 different people who spent time in that room uh, who were hospital employees. And I think they were probably, of those 17, maybe eight of them were, a bunch of them were nurses, just nurses. But some were specialized nurses, and some were different kinds of doctors, and some were people who just administered measurement of things. And so they were all in one place. There was no navigation. And isn't that also what an HMO does? It's sort of a one-stop shop. So in what sense is, is there something different about the model you're describing? The sense is that in this case, you have the doctors actually as the financiers. So as an example of a hospital or Kaiser Permanente, those physicians are on salary. And so then you have a whole different situation where they're not incentivized to um, – to, to, to be very careful about healthcare resources, either. Um, well, they but they're are, also but indirectly, not as directly. Indirectly, as they might be. and so the complaint you tend to hear about those is more withholding care. Yeah, um, they're not incentivized to care as much about. If you're just on salary, you're not as worried about patient satisfaction. You know, you're working for your salary. What is what is the reason to put in the extra time to do the extra surgery to get the person through who needs it done right away? So, so they, they lose the incentive in the other direction. And that's why it has to be set up so that they have to... It's a really fine line that they have to walk. And they're the ones who have the expertise to do it. They're the ones who are with the patient, know the patient, and should be incentivized to get to know the patient, actually, like you say. And... and not do the interview as quickly as possible and move through to the next person, you know, kind of like an assembly line or, or what the AMA used to call supermarket medicine. Um, so, so that's the difference. The, the Kaiser plans, those aren't owned and run by physicians. That's a different third-party corporation that's running it. And similarly, what about the hospital? Obviously, it has some of the advantages, but even there, they have problem talking to each other. And I worried that as anybody who's had a relative in the hospital worries that you know, there's all these people tromping through. It's great that they're really smart and specialized and know a lot about the thing they're supposed to be examining, but you worry that they don't really, I mean, they get to look at the chart, I guess that helps, but sometimes you worry that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Right, exactly. And in those cases too, even any kind of controls on costs or the way resources are used are always going to come from above. So you will have them coming from hospital administrators in that case or insurance companies or the actual Kaiser plan. And that always gets very problematic because this is where we start getting into the regimentation of what physicians can and can't do. And that's very problematic because it's starting to take away the art of medicine. I think we all know that, you know, medicine isn't just a science, it's an art. And there are things that physicians can do and innovate on the ground that in a lot of ways they've been straitjacketed into the system of they have to follow so many kind of blueprints and standards, whether in their hospital, whether they're a physician practicing under the insurance company regime. That um, You hear physicians say all the time, there's ways they could innovate, there's things they could do that it, it doesn't really matter. They're going to get paid the same way either way, or maybe they can't do it because it's not billable. We're taking all the innovation or the ability to innovate away from the physician. And also the local knowledge. And one of the things that strikes me from your observation about having the decisions made close to the scene, that is the patient, the doctor. I've always argued for that on incentive grounds, but I think the really interesting part is the knowledge part. So, you know, there, there, as you say, there's a whole set of strictures put in place by insurance companies to prevent wasting money, uh, which happens because the way the incentive, there's no direct incentive for the parties, either the patient or the doctor to do necessarily the, the, the best thing. Uh, and as a result, there are all these rules. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not covered. Well, what if I want it? Uh, too bad. Or it's free. Uh, but if I don't want it, nah, don't worry, it's free. <laughs> you know, on both sides. And, and of course, uh, the part that's also missing, I'd say, from our current system that I also thought about while reading your book is, is that there's no culture of, of doing the right thing in the medical world anymore, either on the patient or the doctor side. Obviously, there's a 
incentive to do the right thing. You don't want to kill your patient. We all understand that. Many doctors have tremendously dedicated. They're amazing, extraordinary people. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But to do an extra test, because maybe it's really not necessary or it's not worth the cost, is so alien to most people on either side of the transaction. And so many times I've said to my doctor, it just doesn't seem worth it. And they say, well, but it's free. <laughs> I think, why is that? <laughs> I understand, but it doesn't seem like it's right. And that whole extra piece of, you would call it, you know, micro-regulation is just not present in the culture. And it's been destroyed, partly but through the systems of incentives that, that you're talking about. Right, because when I was looking at these prepaid groups, I mean, imagine a culture, and this is what they did. If they had a patient who was chronically ill or, say, maybe elderly and had a lot of different problems going on, at the end of the day, after they stopped seeing patients, these physicians would sit around a table and discuss their problematic cases. I mean, could you imagine that today, where they actually, you have all these different specialists, you know, say a patient needs to see four different ones, talking about which medicine they should be given, will this interact with this, we should try this, what needs to be done first. And then could you imagine the physicians learning from one another across specialty? It's such a check of quality on so many different levels. You know, they're continuing to learn from one another. They're, they're very much having to discuss what they're doing with one another. That's another check on quality. Uh, and then, of course, even just bringing... Um, down overhead costs because everybody's in one spot, you know, not all across town. Uh, equipment costs would be a lot cheaper because they would all be shared within one larger group or multi-specialty group. So there were just, the culture of medicine would be so different if we had gone off on this path. Well, my wife and I started watching House MD recently. We were a little late getting into the uh, into television series. And on that show, it's a bunch of really smart people with quirky personalities. Yes, but they're constantly thinking and working on the on these patients. And of course, in real life, they're dashing from office to office in a very different way. Exactly. Exactly. It's very romanticized on yeah. that show. <laughs> every test, every patient gets every test. You know, there's MRIs out the wazoo constantly on that show. And my, my friend, a uh, good friend of mine is an emergency room physician, and it, it drives him crazy that some of his younger colleagues are always like, well, let's do an MRI. And he said, well, what would we learn from it? Well, we'd confirm the diagnosis. Well, isn't that a kind of an expensive way to confirm it? Can we think of a cheaper way to do it? And that natural incentive isn't often uh, isn't often there. Um, so, so what changed? How do we get to where we are? Where, uh, describe the, the, the nature of the current system and how it, uh, how we got there from that, that current, that system you're talking about. One, you said the AMA worked hard to, to stop it, but of course the AMA got eventually less powerful and other forces, uh, pushed us in this direction. Right, exactly. So, Basically, you have the AMA trying to keep the healthcare system on a 19th century model, right? This individual physician practicing, only extracting payment from the from the patient once they've seen them. You know, no bad. insurance. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so this romantic vision they have, they, they they end up realizing this isn't going to last because in the 1930s with the Great Depression and the New Deal, um, you have reformers looking around all these amazing political economy experiments are going on with the federal government intervening in various sectors. And of course, the healthcare sector is obviously low-hanging fruit in large part because of what the AMA had been doing to completely level and destroy the marketplace. So this made sense that they would they would look at uh, federal funding for healthcare. And they, a lot of reformers really wanted it to go into the original 1935 Social Security Act, uh, President Roosevelt, very astute politician, realized this was not a good idea and could sink the whole bill because the AMA was so powerful and he didn't want the doctors to sink his entire bill. Um, the AMA, one of the reasons it was so powerful is it's organized the national level, uh, the state level, and also county or city level. So it's three levels that matches our federal system. So it made it easier for AMA physicians to lobby and exercise influence at that time when most physicians did belong to the AMA, unlike today. Um, So, but nonetheless, that 1935 attempt to get it into the Social Security bill just launched perennial efforts to reform healthcare. Uh, FDR calls the National Health Care Conference. You start to see in, in, at the end of the 1930s, 
legislation being proposed uh, to introduce federal funding to health care. And that's when the AMA realizes they can't continue on this course of just stamping out everything that's going on in the marketplace. And so they decide they need to come up with a model that they can uphold as this is the private market model and this is what we're upholding is far better than anything that officials and policymakers can conceive of um, through legislation. And so this is the really amazing thing is that AMA leaders actually just out of thin air, you know, just make up a model. And it's the model that we have today. They just make it up. They decide that they're going to finally allow health insurance but physicians still are not going to be allowed to practice in multi-specialty groups. They're not even happy about groups, but they're going to let it go if they're single specialty. Again, because of the fear that they could turn into corporations, medical corporations. And even though they're going to allow health insurance, it cannot run through consumer cooperatives or unions or physician groups. It can only go through insurance companies. Insurance companies are going to be the only ones allowed to participate in this model. And then uh, the two uh, other very important features of this model is that they required insurance companies to pay physicians on a fee-for-service basis. So in lieu of a set salary or a capitation payment, which would be like a set annual or quarterly payment based on the number of patients you were seeing under that plan, that would be a flat fee. They weren't going to allow that. It had to be fee-for-service so that physicians were paid for every single service and procedure that they provided. And the, the next feature was that insurance companies were not allowed to question the way physicians practice medicine. They weren't allowed to supervise them, question their practice. So basically, they're asking insurance companies to fund a service for which they cannot control the supply or even forecast the supply. Um, and this was so obviously problematic that insurance companies didn't even want to have anything to do with it at first. It takes a long, it takes many years for them really kind of to get dragged in to this insurance company model with complete physician autonomy, fee-for-service payment, uh, and um, practicing individually, not in groups. Uh, the insurance companies finally decide to go along with it because they want to join the AMA and trying to keep the federal government out of the healthcare sector. There's a belief in, particularly coming out of World War II, um, and this, the AMA comes up with this model at the very end of the 1930s. Uh, but insurance companies are kind of reluctantly climbing on board, and there's this belief in the 1940s that they kind of take, have to take a hit for the entire business community. There's this idea, this domino theory that if healthcare falls, if healthcare is nationalized or socialized, then it's going to um, create such an important precedent that'll, that'll lead to similar actions across all business sectors in, in the entire economy. Yeah, so a lot of what was motivating the AMA, which is sort of fascinating to me, again, not knowing any of the ideological battles of the 30s and 40s over these issues is that they're worried about socialized medicine, or at least they use that as their scare tactic. Um, and I personally, I think they were right to be scared about it, but uh, and that it's not a good thing. But you'd think a lot of people would find that not so effective, but they, it was effective at the, in those days. A lot of Americans didn't want to be socialist, uh, didn't like uh, the idea of the government running those things. And it was an ideologically effective argument. Ironically, of course, the government's role just continues to grow steadily over the last six decades, seven decades anyway, uh, particularly in the 60s with Medicare and Medicaid. Um, I just want to say before we go any any uh, any further that it drives me crazy when people say, um, well, obviously you can't have a free market in healthcare. Look how horrible our healthcare system is. Um, <laughs> we don't have a free market in healthcare. We don't even have anything remotely like it. There's nothing remotely like prices in most of our use of healthcare, which is kind of an example of what would be and what would happen under free market healthcare. There'd be things like shopping, consuming, <laughs> buying, paying. Instead, we have this weird semi-private. It looks private because these health insurance companies are typically for profit. They're not all, but they're typically for profit. And we have so, and I have doctors who are they're employed on their own. They're not government employees like they would be in, say, the UK. But it's not very private because it's highly distorted by 
a whole bunch of stuff, one of which is the the subsidies to demand, the Medicare, Medicaid, the subsidies to demand through the tax deductibility of the private insurance market. But, but you're really suggesting that the whole structure of the system is not really consistent with what the market would have produced if it had been left alone. Uh, and you can debate, I guess, whether the AMA is a private or a public piece of that um, could, could argue it's still private because they were they were private and all that. But but the idea that their ability to control licensing and other things helped steer us in this direction is a is a very interesting argument. Right. Uh, yeah, I think it's important. I, I think most people, or at least academics and scholars, understand that the AMA. We know the AMA was against government intervention in healthcare. We know the AMA was against socialized medicine. But the other just as important part of that story for understanding the healthcare system we have today is that the AMA was ex- against the marketplace, against competitive markets, very much so. And I think this has been misunderstood for a long time. I think a lot of people think, oh, well, they're against socialized medicine. So, you know, they're all hanging out with their Adam Smith ties and, you know, they're all laissez faire. Absolutely nothing could be further from the truth because. The idea then, too, of the profession is we're physicians and we don't belong to marketplace. And a lot of people want to argue even today, oh, you can't apply economic, you know, efficiency standards markets, or thoughts, yeah. markets to healthcare. It doesn't apply. And, and I just want to say, you know, historically, that's the exact same argument that the AMA made in order to have control over the marketplace, you know, keep women and African-Americans out, and then create this model that at the time, not only did insurance companies not want to get involved with it, but every single person recognized that this model is going to drive up healthcare costs and drive up the cost of insurance. It wasn't an ideological thing. Republicans and Democrats recognized this, you know, healthcare analysts, doctors knew it, insurers knew it. Everybody knew that this is problematic. We've just forgotten that. So and let's talk we about think, that. Yeah. Let's talk about that because you... Uh, make the point, as, as I also uh, do from time to time, that the current set of incentives uh, is not really conducive to cost control, and it's not surprising that costs rise steadily, and in particular that, say, adopting new technologies, uh, those kind of decisions, how much technology to use, whether to use this new device or an old device, uh, those decisions which in a marketplace would be made by consumers and uh, spending their own money is made by the insurance company, uh, typically making it, quote, free, out of pocket at least, to the consumer on that procedure mar- at the margin. Of course, you pay for it in the form of higher taxes. Uh, you pay for it in the form of higher uh, fees to the uh, premiums to the insurance company. But this whole idea that uh, th- that this system is is going to be effective is, is a little bit crazy. And as you point out uh, – the incentives are not very good. So talk about those incentives. And the puzzle I think I have is given that there is some market force still involved in this, why don't insurance companies – why aren't they more effective in keeping costs down? So talk about why the current model is continually drives up price and then why it isn't reined in in any way by the insurance companies themselves because you'd think maybe that they would have an incentive to do so. Right. Well, so it starts out um – because giving a little more history on the model and how it took off will help your listeners understand that the AMA created this model in the late 1930s. And the reason it spreads isn't because it's efficient, isn't because it's a cheap way to access medical care. It's because physicians and insurers are very self-consciously expanding the model and attempting to expand coverage because they're trying to race ahead of the government, the federal government. So I already mentioned what was going on with reformers eyeing healthcare during the 1930s. I think a lot of people are aware of the big push at the end of the 1940s with President Truman proposing universal healthcare. And um, what you see in all these episodes, it's, it's this pressure. Is every almost every single physician conference, insurance company conference that you know I'm reading all the speeches and all the talks and everything. You always have leaders saying. We have to hurry up and expand the insurance, you know, insurance. We have to spread this insurance. We have to spread it in order to prevent the government from reforming health care. 
And at the same time, you have insurers talking about how they're losing money, <laughs> how it's not profitable. I mean, even as you know, by the early 50s, you still have insurers saying, this is ridiculous that we were even involved in this. But by that time, you're starting to get organizational buildup in the private sector where you're having um, you know, departments created in, within life insurance companies. You, know, you put an executive in charge of that. So people are starting to have their territory. You're starting to have organizational buildup. They're starting to be um, in, the, in the insurance industry, this idea that, okay, now we're getting more and more accustomed to this model. But all the while, they cannot believe, even though they're forecasting it, and they're having a lot, of, a lot of problems making money is because um, there's this problem of overutilization and oversupply of care because of the fee-for-service payments. Uh, in fact, one of the things I uncovered in my research, another thing that has been forgotten is how there was this crisis in the 1950s. If you go back and look at the media uh, of all this coverage about all these surgeries that were going on that weren't needed, so you had pathologists testing the tissue of, of the appendixes that were removed from patients and finding, you know, 70% of them are not diseased. Okay, you expect 10, 12, maybe even 15%, but Three. 70%, <laughs> right, hysterectomies, tonsil, you know, tonsillectomies, all these problems showing that, there's, there, that physicians are realizing, hey, this is an easy way to build the insurance company. Um, and so it is a big crisis uh, that's covered. And so what ends up happening is this is as much as the, as the physicians, the AMA leaders had told insurance companies they were absolutely not allowed to question physicians and what they were doing because they were the professionals and the ones with the degree. Um, this is a problem nonetheless for the AMA because how are they going to make this political argument that, Healthcare doesn't need to be reformed when all these really bad stories are showing up about unnecessary surgeries and healthcare costs skyrocketing. People think that healthcare costs really just became a problem once Medicare was passed in 1965, but that's not true at all. In fact, as soon as the model starts to take hold by the end of the 1940s, you already see the cost increases in, in the healthcare bucket um, rising faster than any other category in the consumer price index. So you already see that something's out of whack, but um, insurers and physicians are doing everything they can to expand coverage um, in order to keep healthcare reform out, not just because of the Truman Bill, President Eisenhower tries to reform healthcare, all these Democrats and Republicans in Congress all throughout the 1950s are trying to reform healthcare, again, because everybody recognizes that this insurance company model uh, is driving up costs, and they're worried that because it's driving up costs, um, that not enough people are going to be covered. And also one of the big criticisms of the insurance company model is because it's so expensive, because it's incentivizing physicians to run up care. And I just want to make a little side note that I'm not trying to beat up on physicians. They're behaving very rationally. I would probably, I'm not saying that unnecessary surgery is nothing is, is absolutely fraud, but in other cases of overutilization within the offices and stuff, it's very easy to rationalize hey, I'm just giving them the gold standard of care. It's what I'd give my child or my family member if resources were unlimited. Of course, I would do that. I, that's completely understandable. I don't want to make this sound like I'm beating up on physicians. Um, but this is, this is becoming very problematic. But nonetheless, insurance company, insurance, even though it st starts out very meager benefits, like if you look at insurance policy in the 1940s, it doesn't offer you much. We, we wouldn't recognize it. Um, is being much like what we have today because you really only get you know, 60 to 80% of your hospital costs paid, nothing else, nothing outside of the hospital. But because of this political imperative with the physicians and the insurers saying, we've got a race to build this up, uh, and so that every time we're showing up to testify in Congress, whether it's about the Truman Bill, the Eisenhower Bill, this bill, that bill, we're showing up with a progress report that shows how much We've expanded benefits, so how much the insurance policy is now covering more and more things. Now we're starting to cover doctor's visits outside the hospital. Now we're starting to co cover diagnostic services. Now we're starting to cover preventative medicine so we can show up and tell them why they don't need to reform health care. Uh, and also always show up showing that we're covering more and more and more people. And so that's how you get this really broken model 
expanding to cover almost 80% of the population by the time we get up to 1965 with the passage of Medicare. Uh, And it's even really surprising how insurance companies are losing money on this bet, thinking that if they can keep out the government in the short term, over the long term, they'll make money. It starts to get really fractious because insurance companies start to get mad about this, and a lot of them are not willing to continue going along with it. Uh, But how they're even like subsidizing, you know, pro, you know, using profits from their other underwriting lines, whether it be property, casualty, or life, to subsidize what's going on in healthcare just to continue expanding this model in order to keep the government out. So as all this is going on and, and in the press, it's showing that costs are going up, there's a surgery crisis, the physicians finally have to, have to do something. They can't just keep telling the insurers that, that physicians get to practice however they want. Um, I might have I, I might have gone away from your question some, but I, what Doesn't I think matter. I'm moving towards now is how the insurance companies start to have to introduce cost containment, and it is a fight from day one. The battles are fought in localities and states all across the country. Some, you know, in some areas it's harder than others. That's why I do different case studies of different areas in my book. Uh, but you have this back and forth, but physicians in the end have to little by little gradually, you know, incrementally gets built up over the decades of insurance companies starting to set up utilization review committees to review what physicians are doing. Insurers start to become experts in the practice of medicine. They come up with these, you know, tables, these morbidity tables during the 1950s with, you know, over 3,000 possible diagnoses and associated symptoms in order to help them start to track what standard treatments are and what that should look like. You know, they start to tell physicians you can't admit patients to the hospital unless you get our permission. And you see how little by little you have the power dynamic flipping. So it's not the, you know, physicians is in charge. Little by little, you can see how we get to a point today where your physician, in order to collect the reimbursement uh, from the insurance company, is they have to follow oftentimes a preset treatment blueprint, a standardized blueprint that's been handed to them from the insurance company that they have to follow regardless of what they think in order to, to collect their payment. So you can see how costs become a problem because of the fee-for-service model but then all our efforts to clamp down on it are very top down, not coming the direction you want. It's not an organic, you know, grassroots, bottom up thing. It's a very top down thing coming through the insurance companies. Um, and then with the with the government, usually um, there's a back and forth between the government uh, where the insurance companies will come up with something, and then sometimes the government programs were adopted, such as the diagnostic-related groups that they figure out of paying set fees to hospitals. They start to adopt that in in the Medicare and some of the Medicaid programs in the the early 1980s um, in order to try to control some of the costs there that, hey, if somebody comes in with a heart attack, this is the set fee you're going to get. You don't just get to run up the bill. Um, You were talking before about how nobody knows the price of anything in healthcare. Um, gosh, just to get hospitals, you know, everything has been such a mess. Just to even get hospitals on standard accounting procedures wasn't something that happened. And, you know, till they're not even talking about that until like the 60s and 70s. So there's just no market logic, you know, no economic logic going on at all. I want to ask about two things. The first is just I want to point out something and then I want to take what you've been saying and try to challenge it in a, from a different direction. So the first thing I want to point out is that, because not everybody knows about this because they're so rare, but there are these centers out there now that take no health care insurance, take no government payments. They just take cash. I mean, you mm-hmm. use a credit card but uh, or a check, but you, you, there's, they don't do any paperwork. They just, you get a bill and they, and they send you a bill and you pay it. And they post their prices. You know, a hernia is this much, a new knee is this much, you need a, um, a hip replacement is this much. And they're out there. There's there's a few of them. I don't know how many there are, but th- there are these real market things where there are real prices, and that's what you pay. Now, if you're poor, I think they give some char- charity relief for certain people maybe and certain types of surgery, but it's a real – it's just a private outside-the-system thing that's going on. Yes, you're starting to see a backlash um, 
amongst physicians. Uh, a lot of them are very much dismayed by what the insurance company model has meant that now the insurance companies are supervising them and all the paperwork and all the administrators they have to hire and all the time they have to put into filling out this paperwork and answering to the insurance company. So you're starting to see a backlash. The problem with some of it is, is that most of us, you know, purchase our health care through our employer, another added big complication. You know, as I try to explain to my students, could you imagine, you know, just knowing that you're going to get your car through your employer and that's part of your salary and you get, you know, two different models, the Ford Fiesta or a Toyota Camry and you don't get to pick the color or, or unless you're at a Fortune 500, maybe you get to pick three cars, you know, just the, how that just, really roils these markets and what is offered. So what is even offered to us through the insurance company, our, our choices are very much limited because we're, we're in an employer-provided plan that also, incidentally, you know, benefits the middle class and the upper class in a way it's very much a subsidy. Uh, upper class is very much a subsidy from the government because the yeah. government's giving our employers tax breaks yeah. that the, the fellow who maybe owns his own business or the person who is poor they don't get those business. benefits. Yeah, right. That's horrible. Right. So th- this is one of you know the middle class welfare state. Is we don't need to get into that now, but that that's certainly a yep, thing absolutely. in healthcare. Yep. Certainly demonstrates that. Um, so these these experiments are really exciting. But even just because a lot of the regulation that's been built up at a state and federal level in order to contain costs in the insurance company model, it's preventing these experiments from taking off in a way we would like to see. Um, For example, um, I know there's one thing that's been getting a lot of attention lately are these physician cooperatives that are very much like the prepaid physician groups I just described earlier, where you have physicians practicing together, families or individuals pay a set fee to them. There is no insurance company. Usually what people do is they have um, catastrophic coverage. Um, So that if, you know, they get hit by a bus or they get cancer, they have insurance benefits that'll, that'll kick in after a certain amount. Even the ability to do that is starting is very much delimited by what you get through your employer, what your choices are, also with the ACA, what counts as insurance, what does not, and also even what these doctor groups can do. So I'll give you I'll give you an example. It made a lot of sense. A lot of states passed these regulations saying, you know, physicians can't own their own diagnostic facilities, blood work facilities, for obvious reasons. They were seeing that some physicians, well, of course, then all their patients got, you know, if they owned a a, a, a blood a laboratory, then all their patients got blood workups at that laboratory, right? So they could they could bill. Or if they owned an X-ray diagnostic. Um, or an ambulatory facility, you know, surgery facility, you could see how their utilization rates would tick up on this. So it made a lot of sense that a lot of states said physicians cannot do that. And, but now that these kinds of regulations that are meant to contain costs in the insurance company model really limit what physicians can do today. Even if they're trying to break out of the insurance company model, they should be able to own all these things, but they can't. So there actually needs to be a lot of, state regulations rolled back for these these experiments to really to really flourish. Okay, so let me play um, healthcare economist, um, a certain kind, not my kind, but the other kind. Uh, they would make the following argument against your just general story. They would say, look, all these things are true, but they're not really a function of the insurance company model or the government model. These are just – this is the nature of healthcare. Healthcare – and this goes back to Kenneth Arrow's. Kenneth Arrow recently passed away. He, so his work has been in the news among economists anyway, where economists pay attention to the news lately because he wrote a very influential paper in 1963 that said that healthcare is not like other markets. It's different. And I personally, I'm skeptical about how different it is, but it is different in the following sense. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty around it. And so as a result, one more test, often is a good idea. Now, some tests have costs beyond the monetary. They're invasive, they're dangerous, and so there's a natural tendency, there's a natural feedback loop to prevent people from doing too much diagnostics of those kind of things, and i am become increasingly skeptical, as, as has the profession of, of healthcare, med- medical professions become increasingly skeptical of a lot of tests that seem like a good idea, but now it turns out maybe that they're not so wealthy and good for us, so there's been a big pushback on that, but 
the truth is, is that for a lot of things, we just, well, let's do one more. And so when I have a good like that, uh, there's going to be a natural tendency to overuse it, and someone has to rein it in. It's either got to be the insurance company, the government rules, my pocketbook, and in which case, if it's my pocketbook, then people would say, yeah, well, then poor people don't get to use it as much. That's not so good. So I would answer normally, well, we'll just charitable, we use charity some other ways to help them be able to afford it, which is true, but it's still going to be the case that for a lot of folks, uh, they're going to be spending other people's money. Uh, so it's one thing to say, well, in 1930, uh, there were these prepaid groups, you could belong, but now we have so much more technology, so much more ability to do one more test, so much more ability to to, to just you know try to fix this a little bit better, so many more devices that can go and improve things isn't isn't it really difficult to imagine a free market in healthcare that is going to work anything like the other markets that we know and love okay so i'll take the um first point with kenneth arrow and uncertainty um i alluded to this earlier this idea that healthcare markets somehow don't conform they don't conform uh, to market logic the way other markets do. Um, I'll, I'll take the example of, uh, you know, cars are very complicated products. I do not understand anything about them or their engines. But from branding, I do understand that, you know, a Honda is going to be a, a good bang for my buck, right? Even though I'm very bad, I, I'm not an engineer, I, I know I, can, I can't even change my own oil. So this idea of this, this information asymmetry and even taking it to, okay, so you say that's a product, let's look at a service. Again, there are mechanisms, there always have been, even before the internet, which is so much more efficient, you know, people knew, people knew who were good doctors and who were not. Um, actually, that's, I'm kind of chuckling about this because in the 19th century, before modern medicine and, and the widespread acceptance of germ theory. There were no good doctors. <laughs> yeah, they really, they really. And it, the, the great, the hilarious thing about this, though, is that the patients knew this and acted very rationally in that, you know, physicians were very upset about their competition from, you know, the homeopathic practitioner and the herbalist and the eclectic medical doctor and the midwives and all these other competitors but patients were only acting rationally in that, you know, they were probably paying a good deal less and, you know, the doctor is more likely to kill them. Let's, let's be honest because the doctors were, you know, very much taken with, you know, bloodletting and purging and, and, and all these other practices. Um, so patients, you know, they too behave rationally and, and they know. So um, the information asymmetry, I don't, I really just do not see that as a problem at all. Um, and certainly, like as I was mentioning before, too, even with the prepaid physician groups, this was something the physicians understood. They wanted to keep physician, I mean, patients happy in order to keep their payment at their physician group so they didn't go to another physician group. So there were hundreds and hundreds of them around the country, at least 350 by the, the late 1920s. So... Uh, they were really starting to take off. Um, so that, so I hope someone addresses the information asymmetry question. And then, and also, of course, just pointing out to people that that's the exact same argument the doctors made in order to get control over the market and do a lot of things uh, that I don't think any economist or anybody concerned about uh, the poor would be happy with. Um, then as far as addressing the charity piece, that's always, going to be part of anything you discuss with healthcare. Um, just because you want to make something more, I think making something more efficient uh, certainly only helps charitable care. Uh, we're in a situation now with Medicaid. I've been rather dismayed to see people picking up on this idea rather recently. I think it was Bernie Sanders was Medicare for all. And I would argue that's problematic because the Medicare program is built on the insurance company model. But Medicaid for all is even more problematic because you're looking at a system where patients don't have a lot of access to physicians and hospitals. More than half of physicians don't accept Medicaid because the payments are eh, maybe around 60% of what they would seek to get from an insurance company or uh, under another program. So charity is absolutely important. It's always been important in healthcare. Uh, indeed, a lot of the physicians I interviewed who were practicing, 
I even interviewed a physician who was practicing in the 40s. I had to get to these older gentlemen before they passed away. But I talked to physicians who were practicing in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and I knew they gave a lot of charitable care, but I was shocked at how much charitable care they gave. Um, how many of their bills that they assumed they would write off anywhere from 30 to 50% of their bills that they just knew. They even had sliding scale systems where they would charge the, the, the rich higher prices and such. Now that's what they did. Their memory, their memory may have erred in the direction of thinking of themselves as better people than they actually were. Yeah, exactly. So even if we were to take that that with some grain of salt. Exactly. (laughs) But I was, I was struck by the amount that every single one of them told me this, that it wasn't one of them, but that I got this amount, um, from all of them. And it was also very easy and a lot of things they didn't even intend to be charitable care became charitable care. It's not like today where you're tracked by your social security number and everybody knows who you are. I'll also mention that, that it was very easy for people to pass themselves off as somebody and, and even if they didn't want it to be charitable care. So we, it might not have all been but purposeful. It, it, it does raise an interesting question, right? Which is, well, I'm a, as big a fan as I think anyone of the power of prices to steer resources this is one area where, for a variety of reasons, it's it's related to life and death. Sometimes it's actually life and death. And it's important to remember that a lot of healthcare is not remotely about life and death. It's about a little more comfort sometimes, a little less pain, some reducing some uncertainty. A lot of our medical expenditures are not life and death, but some of them are. And as a result, we do have a lot of emotion around them. And if you're giving away 25 or 30 or 50 percent of your health care to for char- on charitable grounds, then price isn't rationing. You're rationing through your own conscience, generosity, whatever, cultural norms. Uh, so it, it is a world where it's not uh, – some of the effectiveness of, of the price system may not come into play even in, in a world with a lot less government. I think that's – that's important to to concede, and I think the other part of this it's not so much the the asymmetry of information it's the it's the it's the amorphous nature of the of the product so uh which is at least i think what what the folks on the other side would say they'd say, look that's one thing to say I want this tumor removed, I want this bone set, I want this hernia repaired. These are straightforward things where you can actually have a price, but a lot of the medical care that that we want is I'm scared about this pain or this is bothering me and I don't know what it is. And we might not know what it is. It might not be easy to find out what it is. And so those are the areas I think where I think there are market solutions to them, obviously. And, and I think there's inherent, there's gotta be some kind of rationing, whether it's through price or whether it's the physician saying, look, we can't do anything more for you, but uh, it is a little bit of a funky product. Right, and I want to make it extremely clear that I'm all for us having a safety net in healthcare. I, I, but what people, I think anybody who's looking to structurally You're not crazy change the like health- I am, it's good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? No, I actually I I do want a robust system of 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 care for people who can't afford it. But that doesn't mean that you don't say there's a lot. You know, for progressives, there's a lot better way to fulfill a progressive vision of charitable care than Medicaid. I mean, that should be problematic for them that, that they want to put people in a system that I wouldn't want to be in, they wouldn't want to be in. Don't we want structural reform in a way that says, here's a better system where prices have been brought down so that what is offered is generous, you know, reasonable. Obviously, yes, people with, you know, millions of dollars might be able to get care that I cannot get um, as a middle-class person or a poor person. But I still think it's especially, gosh, looking at structural change, it's especially important for poor people because they're the ones who get left over with, you know, the the dregs of what's left over. Um, So I would say that. And again, if you put, you know, we're looking at a system where where physicians are trying to go back to these co-ops where they actually own them. There's been a lot of talk for example, ACA had some demonstration projects with co-ops and stuff. Those were really what I would call faux co-ops. They were not at all 
some of the experiments we've seen that doctors own and manage and run themselves. They were basically just ways to give insurance companies and Kaiser plans more power over doctors. They were not at all uh, like the system I'm talking about or even like these concierge medicine type um, experiments that are developing and be, it becoming larger. Um, but those systems, as they bring down prices and they bring physicians you know, back into the excitement of the art and, and, and the science of medicine, you'll see all kinds of innovations that we can't even conceive of and that would be fantastic for poor people who are, who are on a basic health insurance program provided by, you know, say subsidies that they choose the co-op that they belong to and then have some type of comprehensive insurance plan. So let me try to summarize where I think we are in the conversation and taking drawing on your book, and then I'll let you react to it and have the last word. Um, we spend, I think, roughly three times per person uh, per capita what a lot of other countries spend at our level of econo- roughly economic development. And you can debate whether we get more or better health care. I actually think we get better health care than people in England and people say, oh, but they live longer. Well, that's just not really irrelevant. It's not the only thing that tells whether it's a good system or not. And I think a lot of the question is, is um, you know, if you were sick, where would you want to be? And I think a lot of Americans would be happy here. And I think a lot of people in the UK would be happier. Now, a lot of Americans would not be happy here. Those are the people who fall between the cracks of the current system. The cracks of the current system are people who don't have a job or they have a job that isn't covered, doesn't generate a fringe benefit of health insurance, who aren't getting met, but are not getting Medicaid, or and they're not old enough to get Medicare. So, because of all the things we've done to drive up the price, those folks have a horrible time. Mm-hmm. The way people want to fix that, one way people want to fix it is they – and all that comes from the system you've been talking – you and I have been talking about the the insurance model, the government's role in that model and the so-called private sector and the way it's been essentially a corruption, of, in my view, of the private sector. So the people look at that and say, well, that's absurd. It's absurd to spend three times as much. Maybe we get slightly better health care, but it's not that much better if it is better. And for people who can't afford it, it's a lot worse. So that's a horrible system. So we need to just bite the bullet, nationalize the whole thing, get rid of all the paperwork, and we'll save some costs that way. And we'll all have the same pretty good health care. And socially, that's a desirable thing. Um the other view, which is my view, is let's unleash the innovative power of markets. As you point out, we don't know. We can't imagine how people will get organized if we could leave them alone and give them the freedom to choose how to organize to help poor people, to help rich people, to help average class people. And we've killed all that innovation. And worse, we've incentivized it to do things that are not very effective at a high price because we've taken out the feedback loops. It's something akin to the way we've treated the financial sector. It's sort of private. <laughs> Unless, unless it's mm-hmm. unless you know it doesn't turn out so well, in which case we we make sure they get all their money back, uh, but only for certain people. Mm-hmm. That's a so that's a sort of private system. It's the worst of both private and public, and I think yep. to some extent we've done that in healthcare. So, um, what do you think of that summary? And where would you see us? Where would you rather see us going? Or do you think we ought to go in that single payer direction that a lot of people want? Well, so I would say both. <laughs> so I would say. We have a system, you know, what I would say to people, I guess, on the on the right, classical liberals is, look, you've got to look at the history. It is so built up and it is so disjointed. Medicaid's a completely different system than Medicare, and it's built on this insurance company model. And then you had the nonprofit insurers and the for-profit insurers. Nobody knows what the price is, partially because of this, all these different People are being paid different ways. It's also disjointed. Regulation on the state level, regulation on the federal level, you have to understand that at this point, just looking politically, people expect a solution to come from the government. And even if you're, you know, absolutely radical libertarian, you have to see that the solution does end up having to come from the government, even if you're saying we're rolling back regulation, right? So what if we went to a single pair or a universal system, at least where you are subsidizing people who can't afford care? Maybe you don't have mandates, but you're providing subsidies. Or I suppose some people would say vouchers, subsidies for people uh, to, to purchase insurance. This is a lot like what they do in Switzerland, right? 
people are sub, you know, are given subsidies to purchase the care that they want. But if we are rolling back a lot of the regulation that understandably has built up in order to contain costs, you know, certificate of need and what physicians can and can't do and even licensing laws, what, you know, nurse practitioners can and can't do and PAs can and can't do. If a lot of this was rolled back and we actually allowed physicians to organize themselves as, as they wanted to, and I, I can promise you they would go back to, because you're already seeing this with concierge medicine and physician co-ops today, where they would want to take control over these things. And the insurance companies would still be there, but happily, you know, probably not until the bill kicked into a quarter million dollars, or they would be there for the catastrophic. They don't want to be this involved in healthcare and doctors and hospitals either. Um, so you would, this, this to me is the best of all worlds where, where you have a universal system that takes care of the neediest amongst us, but at the same time, is recognizing that people need to be incentivized correctly, both physicians and patients. My guest today has been Christy Ford Chapin. Her book is Insuring America's Health, the Public Creation of the Corporate Healthcare System. Christy, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.